The Inksa Horizons podcast. Conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy. Welcome to the Inksa Horizons podcast. I'm Naomi Simon-Kumar. When the SARS-CoV-2 virus emerged at the end of 2019, it's fair to say that many people would have been hard-pressed to say what an epidemiologist did. Did they treat skin disease? Yet within the space of a few weeks, the vital work of epidemiologists was front and centre globally. They were headlining news stories and politicians were addressing their nations, saying that they were doing exactly what the epidemiologists were telling them to do. Seemingly overnight, a whole host of otherwise quiet scientific disciplines were thrust into the spotlight. Modelers, virologists, population health experts... These were all just some of the professions to whom the public looked for guidance and hope. Yet, in pre-COVID times, many had been decrying a crisis of trust in science, particularly when it came to issues of high public interest, such as climate change. And suddenly, COVID-19 and the various leadership responses to it seemed to have brought about a groundswell of trust, as well as scrutiny, in science and scientists was the research community caught unprepared for this kind of spotlight. What was it like to be an epidemiologist in the early stages of the pandemic and to lead a nation's COVID response advisory committee? Professor Salim Abdul Karim is one of the world's leading infectious disease epidemiologists, best known for his contributions to HIV prevention and treatment globally. He's the Capresa Professor for Global Health at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, Director of the Centre for the AIDS Programme of Research in South Africa, as well as the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. As part of our INSA 2021 Biennial Conference, Professor Abdul Karim sat down with global health governance expert Dr. Enes Hassan from the International Science Council. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much to INGSA for inviting me to join uh, this conference. My name is Ines Hassan. I'm a senior consultant at the International Science Council, and I'm leading this COVID outcome scenarios project where we're trying to Im- prepare for the impact of COVID in the longer term. And so it's very apt and also a great honour for me to interview Professor Salim Abdul Karim today. Of course, Slim requires no introduction. He's a South African clinical infectious disease epidemiologist, and uh, as mentioned, the director of Caprissa and a professor of global health at Columbia and much, much more. But he's also been at the forefront of the national response to COVID in South Africa, across the region, and actually globally as well. So a real pleasure to interview you today, Slim. Who better to speak to um, than for us to better understand what we have learned on science advice and science diplomacy. Welcome, Slim. Thank you very much, Ines. It's good day to you and good day to all of those attending. It's a great pleasure and an honor to be with you here at INSA today. Fantastic. Really, today, the focus of this particular session is about evidence in policy making and how, as a result of the pandemic, policy making will likely change. What are the kind of the key lessons that we need to learn in terms of science advice and, and science diplomacy as a result of the pandemic? So I'm just going to start launching straight into questions. 
The first thing for me is that, you know, we all know that scientists have never been so visible before, at least, you know, in the, in the last couple of decades. Never has science been so consistently at the top of mind of politicians around the world. And in countries like the UK, where I'm based, um, and in other countries, we're constantly hearing our leaders say, we're following the science when it comes to tackling COVID. And if they were always following the science, that would really be fantastic. <laughs> but I just wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think of this newfound visibility? How do you think that's going to change things going forward? And also, how much policymaking do you really think um, has actually followed the science? You might for, have some examples from South Africa that you can share with us. Sure. You know, so I've been quite struck at the profile of uh, science in the course of this pandemic. I've been involved in giving scientific advice over many years, and I'm used to it being a backroom activity you know, you just provide the advice and those who are receiving it can take off it what they wish. But in COVID, it became very much front and center because people were being directly affected in their lives, not always understanding why and not always appreciating what the alternatives are. And in the midst of so much of uncertainty, they would much rather that the scientists were providing the guidance rather than ideology or different vested interests. So I think we began to see a completely new world. It's hard to imagine that it's gonna go back to how it used to be because I think the public's got very used to this idea now. You know, the scientists are always talking to them, sharing science in a way with transparency, you know, hitherto not known. I think the problem has been that with that visibility and with that profile comes many responsibilities. And among those responsibilities is to ensure that the advice that we're giving and the advice we're conveying to the public is advice that conveys the evidence that's available, but ensures that it's conveyed in a way where the uncertainty is clear. And I've seen in countries across the world that there are many scientists who, you know, have profiles as well coming on social media and public televisions and so on. When they are conveying information, they don't convey it with the level of uncertainty that's involved. So the audience gets the wrong impression that, oh, this is how it's going to be. And then when it's not like that, you end up with a situation where the science is and the science advice is being undermined. One has to be very careful in this period that we take all of those into account. In South Africa, it is very interesting, very early in the epidemic, when I think we had about 406 cases or so, uh, it was about 10 days after the first case, the minister decided he was not clear what to be done. So he brought 51 scientists together and created a committee of scientists to give him advice. And part of our responsibility was to take the evidence that was available, little as it was, and to give him advice. So we saw that in a whole different way of doing things, uh, not usually done in our government in that way. And I analyzed the first year of all the advisories we provided. We provided 119 advisories, all of them formally written down with the question, what's the evidence and what's the advice? And I was impressed, actually, in a review of 
those 119, that 81% of those advisories were fully implemented. Some were, the remainder were partially implemented and 4% were not implemented at all. That's an impressive way. And I think it was because they needed the science and they needed the scientists to bolster their decision-making going forward. Absolutely. I just want to go back to that point about um, uncertainty, because I think one of the biggest problems is that where you're getting scientists talking about policies or kind of evidence with real certainty, that makes a more compelling story. And so that's what the media jumps on. And that's what people on social media latch onto. They think, okay, he sounds confident. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but that might not necessarily be the case. And also the other thing is sometimes, you know, as scientists, we, we think we know based on the evidence we have by a certain date, we'll make a decision. But then later on, we, we realize that that decision could be improved upon. It could even be a mistake. And that's the nature of science. But the problem is science has become so visible so quickly. And I don't think that the general public, maybe even the media, or do you think they have sufficient science education to be able to deal with that level of uncertainty or to recognize that actually it's fine to make mistakes. It doesn't mean you'll lose trust in your scientists. And actually those who are kind of presenting evidence with lots of certainty actually might be those that we question the most. Just any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, we've seen across the board, when you speak with the confidence that you know what's going to happen, it comes across very differently then somebody who goes and says, well, this could happen, alternatively that probabilities are in this direction or that. So you're right, when you counterpose the two, the more confident individual is the one that's giving the information without the level of uncertainty that it comprises. And we've seen that challenge. For example, you know, in my own experience, very early on, after we were just completed the first wave in South Africa in September, you know, we had scientists who were proclaiming that South Africa had achieved herd immunity and that, uh, you know, we didn't need to worry much about a second wave or it'll be a minor second wave or even that we don't need to worry about this disease. We've got immunity from the common cold coronaviruses or even, oh, there's, this is just much ado about nothing. This is just like the flu. I've had to deal with all of those. And when you speak with that level of conviction, people take that to heart. And that's a problem for us. I think as we, we've grown with this epidemic now in science advice, we've learned the art of conveying information with its uncertainty, but in a confident way that the public can take away a clear message that doesn't leave them wondering what on earth is going on, but they have some idea. That's been happening, and I've been seeing how government advisors across the world are conveying information in such a clear way now. What about then, for example, with instances of pandemic fatigue? You know, a lot of people are just kind of sick and tired of hearing about COVID. How do you think people will continue to respond to that type of advice, do you think? I think it's across the world. And I think in each country, I've been quite struck as to how insular they've become. And when we convey information, people think, you know, that the government's trying to oppress them or they're doing all these wrong things or that, you know, this problem is ours and everyone else is actually enjoying their freedoms. 
And I have to just remind everybody, this is a pandemic. We're all in this together. It gives nobody any pleasure to deprive anybody of their freedoms. But I think what has become clearer is that when we promote prevention measures, it gets to a point where it's just become too repetitive. And it's become so much so that you, you really don't want to hear it anymore. It's just too much. But what I have seen is that when the cases start rising again, people start becoming anxious again. And they, they start wondering what's going on now because the cases are rising, they, their friends are getting ill, their family members are getting ill, and they know people dying. And with that anxiety, I have just seen how people grasp at straws. They want the world to make sense. They want a narrative that helps them understand what is going on. And it's in that environment that conspiracy theory is about. Because suddenly you know who to blame. It's yeah. not about what to blame, you know who to blame. And it's either Bill Gates is microchipping you or somebody is to blame. The more prominent the person, the more powerful the person, the easier it is to blame that person. The conditions have been created through that anxiety for the alternative narratives to emerge. And that becomes the critical point at which scientists need to ensure that they continue to convey the scientifically valid information, but doing so in a non-judgmental way, not judging people for their sometimes wild beliefs or their alternate views, but just simply conveying the facts and letting people make their own decisions. I have found that the more you challenge the conspiracy theories, the more people who hold those conspiracy theories, you know, believe even more strongly. They feel that they're now being challenged and they have to defend their, their positions even more strongly. So I've learned how all of those have occurred in the course of this, even with the complacency. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point. I mean, I think um, one of the problems is that we've had this pandemic has occurred while instances of kind of science denialism has been increasing, you know, kind of the anti-vax movement has been increasing over many years. We got to a point where there's so much misinformation and, you know, it's available over social media. It just came at, it couldn't have come at a worse time almost. And so to prepare for the future as a result of this, like lessons learned, you know, we need to meet people kind of where they are. We need to be kind of non-judgmental, kind of, like you said, need to work more closely with those people within the community. What else do you think we can do to kind of tackle those sorts of, you know, anti-science sentiments or kind of that lack of trust in science? What do you think lessons are learned, you know, for kind of future global emergencies other than perhaps the pandemic? So let me just take one step back, if I might, Inez, and uh, yeah. just reflect on HIV. So I was in the midst of having to deal with HIV denialism, AIDS denialism, and we hosted the AIDS conference in Durban in 2000 in the midst of a situation where our president didn't believe that HIV even caused AIDS or that AIDS even existed. When you have a political challenge at that level, 
it's very difficult to take on the disease. It's really difficult because you are creating conflicting messages, messages between people in authority, people who wield power, and you have individuals, us like scientists and so on, who don't really have those positions of authority, but have a moral advantage in a way because of our scientific background and that we have no agenda to promote anything. But it really becomes a challenge. And I saw, you know, shades of that in the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the US, where, you know, the biggest promoter of conspiracy theories, denialism, oh, this disease is going to disappear in the summer. And, uh, you know, no, you don't need to worry about masks and so on. And when you create those conflicting messages, it's very hard for the nation to move forward. And fundamentally, you have to have some broad agreement and you need most of the people to follow the rules because if they don't, then you have little chance of controlling this virus. So I've seen how, you know, that political vacillation and political denialism can undermine even the most well thought out plan in many ways. Now, I've seen that for me, perhaps the biggest thing that I have learned from the first epidemic I investigated was back in the 1980s of measles and coming from all of that time to eliminating polio in South Africa and so on. I have seen in this pandemic something that has never been clearer from all of my previous work. And that is our fundamental interdependence. And there's been no situation where each person's actions have an enormous amount of ramifications. When you think back that this virus, when it entered into humankind, it probably just entered in one person, maybe two. And from that one person, we're dealing with a pandemic. So every one of us is fundamentally linked. And so we say it glibly, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe. But the truism in that, in that everyone's actions fundamentally influence who's going to live, who's going to die. It influences who's going to get infected. It influences your work colleagues, the people you travel in public transport with, your family members. And especially with a a virus like the Delta variant, which is so highly infectious, the whole world is so interlinked. And so in that kind of situation, we have to find the public good. We have to find the message that enables people to act in the public interest, not just in their own personal interest, because in this instance, their own personal choice has a huge impact on everybody else. And so balancing that has been for me the key challenge and one that we're going to have to do better with in the next pandemic. Absolutely. Do any countries spring to mind to you where you think that there was a good kind of levels of global solidarity and, you know, where they did see that they needed to abide by these public health precautions, you know, and follow the rules for the greater good, you know, for the public good, just out of interest, any kind of particular countries stick out to you? 
I think several countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, had a big advantage. One, because of their more confidence in government. That's the first issue. But secondly, some of the prevention measures were already ingrained in those societies. For example, if you go to Japan, they wear a mask, even if they're just feeling a little ill. It's not something they need to be told. Uh, in fact, somebody, if you're not wearing a mask and you, you know, cough or something, they look at that as, you know, that's not the social norm. So yeah. in societies like that, and that's why we saw the epidemic was quite readily controlled in some countries like Vietnam. There were other countries where mainly because they were islands like New Zealand, that you could close them off. And so you close them off and you dealt with the epidemic in a very significant way and controlled it well. So I've seen those occur in countries like that. And now, I mean, I've just been blown away when I've looked at China, when they have 26 cases, that's a major outbreak. They go and test 4 million people in a city, you know, just get it under control. That's impressive that you can do that in a society. I was hoping that um, the experience of this pandemic would mean that we would have the same results in countries like the UK. But, you know, we've had Freedom Day already and everyone's gotten rid of their masks (laughs) on public transport. So I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I'd actually like to talk a little bit about science diplomacy. So, of course, we're in a global pandemic, like you said, we're all very dependent on each other. This virus is affecting all countries of the world, some more than others. However, policies and science advice are not implemented on a global level. And of course, this is not unusual, but it does create many problems. We've got success stories on a national level. You've given us some great examples, but obviously things get more complicated once you look at things on a supranational level. So I just want to know what you think about how the world has fared in terms of science diplomacy. So trying to build that kind of global scientific collaboration between nations. And do you have any examples of where science advice has been successfully implemented on a regional or a global level throughout the pandemic? So I've been so impressed with scientific accomplishments in the course of the last, what, 19 months or so of the pandemic. It would normally take us 10 years to make a vaccine, and that's being generous. I mean, I've been working on HIV vaccines for 33 years, and we still don't have one. That we were able to make, and I say we, I mean, in the broad scientific community, the royal we, make a vaccine against COVID within nine months. That needed a level of collaboration that enables the world to come together to solve the problem. So if you take, you know, the first ever vaccine, positive vaccine results, they were from the Pfizer-BioNTech clinical trial. That trial was done in several countries, both North and South. It was done in Brazil, it was done in Argentina, in South Africa, in Germany, in the US. So in all of these countries had to come together to do this clinical trial and to do it quickly so that we can get a result in breakneck speed. So I have been really impressed at how scientists have come together across the globe. And nowhere has that been more clear in the way in which information is shared on the new variant. So a variant is being created in one part of the world. We know about it and we can better prepare across the world. We saw that, for example, with the Delta variant, that 
you know, our Indian colleagues started first describing and we all think, what are they talking about? And there, there's a new variant. And so that sharing of information and that, that the whole scientific community needs to work together has been really critically important. And it hasn't only been in biomedical research, it's been very much the case in social science research, behavioral research. When one thinks about the studies that were done about how does one motivate people to wear masks or what are the different social and behavioral interventions then how do they impact on you know, social distancing and so on? How do they impact on the epidemic? All of those studies, many of them were large multinational studies that brought many different cultures and viewpoints together. So I think we as a society globally have benefited from this ability of scientists to work across the world together. And I think that as I look at what lies in store, I think we are still to see quite a significant epidemic. I think we're going to see more variants. And if we are, we, it's going to be even more important that we work together because as soon as a new variant emerges somewhere, we need to know a lot about it. And that means that within a matter of two to three months, we need to know a lot. Does do our vaccines work against it? Does it transmit faster? What's its clinical profile? And so on, so that we can give the correct advice. You know, If we don't do that, then we will end up with a situation where we will only learn about a variant long after it's gone. Because the way in which this virus is spreading is that we get a new variant every few months. Yeah. So if it's going to take us four months to get a result, we're already dealing with the next variant. So that's why our work together is so important. Absolutely. We just had an audience, a question from an audience member who asks, um, who says science is international and collaborative in nature, but when politics becomes involved, does that compromise the outcome once national interest is introduced? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> but I would also like to ask you about the interpretation of evidence, interpretation of scientific evidence. So, you know, scientists will work together and they'll collaborate. But, you know, we've seen how people interpret science can be very different. And it genuinely can be, you know, because scientists and humans see things differently, but it also can be a result of political influence as well. And so, yeah, I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that and perhaps you have any examples of where we have seen that change, I guess, how science was actually used to determine policy. Yeah, I think I've seen that in many ways in various countries in Africa. I'll give one example that I think illustrates the point. It was in the first week of April, we were collating the available evidence on whether masks would be something that would be beneficial in dealing with this epidemic in South Africa. Yeah. And the WHO was not committing on that matter. Their view at the time was that the evidence was insufficient. Yeah. And in fact, in the US, even people like Dr. Fauci were saying that there's no evidence yet for masks. Yeah. And as we collated the information, there was evidence in all different directions. A study you know, showed that actually cloth masks don't work that well as uh, medical masks. 
But we said, you know, we can't have people wearing medical masks. We need the medical masks of the medical people. And so what evidence can we pull together? And so eventually, when you look at the totality of the evidence, it left us a bit in abeyance. We were not clear about where it would fall. And so we had to, in many ways, go on what was at that stage somewhat circumstantial evidence. And we recommended on the 7th of March to our government that they should institute mask wearing. And the government did that. Within a matter of a few days, they made it a regulation, but it wasn't compulsory. You could wear it if you wanted it. Very soon, as the evidence grew and as the WHO recommended, it became something that was mandatory in certain high-risk indoor settings. So I think I have seen how difficult it has been to produce a clear guidance when the evidence is flimsy. But when you take that to the politicians, they want a certain level of clarity that the science doesn't have. And that process of translating, you know, from the evidence into the policy, that process got very complicated. And the reason it got complicated in COVID was two things. The one is you've got multiple constituencies. You've got businesses who want to open. They have their own access to politicians. You've got, you know, a whole industry of hospitality that want to open up all their big hotels and so on. And you've got scientists saying, well, you know, the cases are rising. This is not a good time to do all of that. So you've got multiple constituencies all hammering at this issue. And so the the process got very complicated. But for me, the thing about COVID that was really the determining factor was speed. Time is not on your side. You lose a week and your epidemic's already getting out of control. So you don't have the luxury of time, that time to consult, that time to bring people onto your side. And so policymakers really end up coming across like they are dictating because they haven't gone through their normal consultations. They don't put it out there, get views and try and find a way forward and build consensus. There's no time. If you want to do all of that, you're going to be left behind. And so this virus with its speed has been an enormous challenge for policymaking because governments are not designed, you know, to turn on a dime. They are huge super tankers and there are so many rules that need to be changed and funding allocations that need to be altered and people to consult. It's a challenge. That's what I learned in the course of all of this. A real challenge. I'm really glad I'm not in charge, I have to say. The problem is you want politicians and you want leaders to act quickly, like you said. We don't have time when when we have a respiratory um, virus that's kind of spreading. We don't want people to make decisions, delayed decisions. But also there are some harms associated with some of the non-pharmaceutical measures or the public health and social measures. And we've got a question from the audience who's asking... They've said the pandemic has had a very negative impact on the psychological well-being of individuals. And they, they ask, how is this factored into kind of general science advice? And I'm going to add to it, you know, how can we be better at incorporating this? So very quickly, uncertain amount of evidence. We want to make decisions very quickly. But, you know, 
weighing up the harms and the benefits. How do you think we can do a better job? I think uh, hindsight is a good teacher yeah. because I remember the day, you know, that we were trying to decide whether to institute lockdowns and the decision was made. I mean, I'm really pleased I wasn't the one making that decision because we didn't know, we'd never done something like this. i tell you what I did do when I got asked this question. I went and did a search. I went through looking for what is known about lockdowns as a public health measure. Yeah. You know, I only came up with three documents on Google. The one was a Chinese handbook on their lockdown for COVID. The other two, one was in Mexico where they had a lockdown for swine flu. And the other was where a city was locked down for Ebola in Sierra Leone. That was it. That's it. The sum total of evidence about lockdowns, it doesn't even feature in the two most important textbooks on public health. So lockdown is not a public health well-used measure. We don't have evidence to draw on to make that kind of decision. So we make those kinds of decisions knowing that we don't fully understand it, but yeah. then it has negative effects yeah. and we don't anticipate them because we don't really understand it well enough. I mean, to me, a clear example was when we instituted the lockdown in South Africa, patients stopped going to the clinics and hospitals for their treatments, and we had a drastic drop. I mean, less than half the number of cases of HIV were being diagnosed. The TB notifications dropped by more than half because I'm not going to go to the clinic. That's where the COVID patients are. Yeah. You're crazy. So it, the clinics are open, the hospitals are open. So the negative effects of our interventions are some things that we learn with hindsight. Now that we know the impact of lockdowns on gender-based violence and how that increased when people were locked together in this way, we saw how health services were compromised. We saw how mental health was negatively affected. So we've learned that. And now if we ever gonna do anything like that again, which I hope we don't have to, but if we did, we now would be in a better position to mitigate some of those impacts, better plan, better prepare for that. But I think overall, what we are learning in an, very much an empiric way is that it's very hard to a priori balance the benefits and the harms when something is not really clearly well known and the evidence base is not strong. So you have to, in many ways, take a plunge of faith and hope that its impact will largely be beneficial, especially because the counterfactuals are not there. If you didn't do this, what would have happened? And the best counterfactuals I've seen have been models. I mean, I remember when Neil Ferguson did his analysis and he showed how in the UK that they had delayed the lockdown and that if they had gone into a lockdown one week earlier, they would have close to halved the number of deaths in April. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a modeling exercise because we don't actually have the reality of the counterfactual. But if that's the counterfactual, imagine the mental effects that would have had. So there are many things that we don't, because we don't know what all the benefits are, 
but we know the harms because it was implemented. So I think we're balancing it and trying to learn and do better going forward. Do you think there is more of a moral imperative to run RCTs, you know, randomized controlled trials, testing out these public health measures? You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the ethics of implementing that sort of a study were questioned. But do you think now, potentially in the future, we may see kind of more quick RCTs being run, as well as kind of not just with the great development of kind of, you know, vaccines and treatments, but you see, we might see more public health type RCTs run, you know, early on when we're starting to see outbreaks. Do you think that's something that will become more normal and more widely accepted? Absolutely. I totally agree with that approach. And I think for me, even though we describe the effects of interventions, hmm. there is the opportunity to do randomized controlled trials in certain instances. Yeah. And it becomes important because there are so many confounding variables that are associated with some of the interventions that hmm. unless you have some clear control effect to compare it against, and it has to be more than just an ecological comparison. You know, we did it in this place, it was like this, and we, did it, we didn't do it in that place, so it was like that. That's too flimsy, and there are too many other variables that confound that association. So I agree with you. We need to be doing many more randomized controlled trials. Now, we can't do it for everything, but there are certain things that can be done. The problem has been that our science system was designed in a pre-COVID era. Yeah. So by the time you wrote your protocol, you designed your intervention, and you submitted it for all your regulatory approvals, and you got your grant funding, the epidemic's in another way. It's, you know, you're long past. So our systems in science were not designed in a way that enabled us to do them quickly, yeah. whereas, Collecting routine information and routine data that's collected anyway as part of surveillance, that was already available. So I think that our science systems need to be more adaptable and they need to understand the pressure of time. And I keep coming back to this because that's the one thing this virus doesn't give us. It doesn't give us the luxury of time. So that our science systems have to, they've got to be more nimble to enable us to do these studies in a rapid way, because that evidence is going to be important, whether it's for behavior change. I mean, right now, we really need randomized controlled trials that look at what interventions help us increase vaccine uptake. You know, all we've got is, you know, this country tried a million dollar lottery incentive. This country tried that. We don't know what the net effects of those are. So, I think going forward, that's going to become increasingly more important, not just for this pandemic, but for the ones to follow as well. Absolutely. One of the kind of examples of perhaps poor science diplomacy or kind of where we didn't act as a global community that really stands out to me is the safety messaging around the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we saw some countries suspend its use while at the same time others offered it to those over 50, while at the same time others offered it to those over 65. We saw this kind of really kind of different decision, which is great. You know, these are kind of sovereign decisions and we don't want that to change. 
But the reality is that sort of mixed messaging was incredibly confusing, again, to see uh, throughout the pandemic. And I just wanted to see if there were any lessons specific. And the other thing to do with that is also there was kind of this domino effect in decision making. So you saw one country suspend the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, then the other, then another. Same with certain policies like closing schools. So what can we learn from that? Is there anything do you think we can do better? And if there is a better approach, do you think that can ever be reality? Yeah, I think we saw that with the viral vector vaccines, both the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Both these vaccines that use adenoviral vectors, in the case of AstraZeneca using a chimp adeno, and in the Janssen vaccine using a human 26 adeno. In both instances, they've never been done before. We've never implemented viral vaccines before. We've never implemented mRNA vaccines before. So this is completely new ground. We are, we are treading in uncharted territories. And so we have to be hypervigilant. If there is a side effect, or if there is some kind of harmful effect, that our systems pick it up and that we act with an abundance of caution. And that's what ended up happening. And sometimes that abundance of caution had quite negative ramifications. And we saw that because it created confusion. Some countries estimated the benefits and the harms in different ways. When they started seeing cases occur of thrombocytopenic clotting, they became very concerned about it, much more so than other countries where it was much more rare. So it wasn't because it was so new and we didn't really have a sense of it all. In the first few cases, I think the action was taken when eight cases were reported. So people were overreacting. I would say overreacting because they wanted to be cautious. And I think that it was appropriate. Yeah. But the lesson for me has been that somewhere we need some kind of international single repository that allows all this information to be collated so that we don't have one country, say in this case, Denmark, that you know acted quite quickly on AstraZeneca and other countries that were still vaccinating. So somehow we've got to get some kind of way in which that information is brought together. And I think going forward, we certainly need to do that. If anything, going forward, we're going to make sure we have better systems for information collection, but also better systems to ensure things like access to diagnostics and, importantly, that there's global equity in the way important global goods like vaccines are distributed. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I have so many more questions that I could have asked you, um, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. That was absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much again for your time. Great pleasure. The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the Science Policy Interface, join the INGSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's I-N-G-S-A And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations.